Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. It's so good to be together as a church family. I want to say hello to everybody who's joining us online. We know that as you worship today in your living room, or if you're traveling in a car watching, or uh, wherever you're at, I want you to know that you are gathered with other brothers and sisters who are worshiping Jesus and fixing their eyes on the cross, just like you. I wanna say hello to all of the kids who are with us. This is one of those special days when we have uh, younger kids with us in the service, and we love when we get to do this. We love having you here. This is really special, and it's not just something that is for the adults. This is something that is for the kids. This is a day when we talk about how much God loves us And that's true of each and every one of you. Uh, We love you, God loves you, and we're really glad that you're here. So I wanna give you a little bit of an assignment. There's gonna be some times when I'm gonna need your help with some stuff in the sermon. But while you're listening and while you're going through the service, there might be things that make you ponder something or wonder or ask a question. So I want you, as we go through this, I want you to think of one thing that when we're all done, You can talk to your parents or your grandparents or your big brother or sister and say, this was something I thought about during the Good Friday service. So I want you to think of that so that you know when on the way home you can talk to your family about that. Let's get started with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it amazes us that you would love us so much that you would send your son to rescue us. And so we ask that you would move in our hearts, that you'd send your spirit to open up our eyes to see just how amazing, how beautiful Jesus is. See the glory of the cross and have our hearts humbled and changed because of it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this has been a year of barriers, hasn't it? I mean, that's kind of what social distancing is. It's a barrier of six feet between you and the next person. And it's not just kind of the air between you. We often put up actual physical barriers to help us do this, right? So I go to the store and there is a plastic barrier between me and the cashier. Or you go to school and there's some kind of a barrier between you and your teacher. Or you're at a restaurant and between you and the next table, there's another table there. Or I'm in a meeting and we have the barrier of Zoom that keeps me from reaching out and just touching Pastor Jim, you know, which is, I've never done in a meeting before, but now I can't. So that's what we got. And of course, there are those barriers that we keep strapped to our face all the time. And we know why they're there. We know that they're there to keep us safe and protect people around us. We get it. But after a year of this, we all have that same feeling, right? Like, I just can't wait for the day when all the barriers are gone and we can just be with each other safely. You even have a little bit of that taste when you walk out of a building and you've been wearing your mask for a while and you take it off and you have that feeling of like, ah, the barrier's gone. Good Friday is about removing the barriers. Not talking about your mask, I'm talking about something much bigger than that. I'm talking about the barriers between us and God so that we can be with God safely. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, it's one of the biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. And this passage comes after Jesus has been arrested. He's been given a sham trial. He's been handed over to Roman soldiers. And those soldiers 
have beat him up. And they put a crown of thorns on his head. And they've mocked him. And they have paraded him through the street and then driven nails into his arms and to his feet and hung him up to die. And these are the very last moments of Jesus' life. Starts in verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes and takes him down, they said. Then with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tonight, we're gonna focus mainly on one line in this passage. It's the line that says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Because this event, it symbolizes, it points to what Jesus was doing on the cross as he removed the barriers between us and God. We're gonna talk about three different barriers that the cross removes. The first one is this. The cross removes the barrier of sacrifice. It removes the barrier of sacrifice. This curtain that was torn isn't just any old curtain. It's not just hanging in some random room. It is in the very center of the temple. It was hanging in front of a room that you could not enter. enter. The only way you could enter was with a sacrifice. This curtain blocked the entrance to the most holy place, the holy of holies, sometimes it's called. It was the heart of the temple and the center of Israel's entire culture. Because there's no longer a temple in Jerusalem and we no longer offer sacrifices, it's hard for us sometimes to grasp just how significant the temple was to the people of Israel, just how central it was to their life and their culture. This is the place that had been at the center for 1,400 years. God himself designed it. He gave the instructions for the original tabernacle, which is kind of a mobile temple, to Moses up on Mount Sinai. That's how important this is. When Israel was traveling to the promised land as they camped in different places, the tabernacle was the literal center of their community. Everything else revolved around it. The greatest kings in all of Israel's history, the reason they were great was because they either planned or built or repaired the temple. Kings like David and Solomon and Josiah. The most tragic moment in all of Israel's history was the moment when that temple was destroyed by an invading army. And the greatest poets of Israel's history, the, the, the prophets, they wrote these gut-wrenching laments. And for centuries afterward, they, they cried out about what, that, what happened when they lost the temple. There, there had been wars that had been fought, people who had died for the temple. In Jesus' day, there was a, a struggle over who would control the temple because it was the center of their life. We have very few symbols in our society that have the same significance it's not the same as a church building or a government building, the Capitol or the White House. Even if you combined all of those together, it wouldn't quite get what the temple meant to the people of Israel. It was a symbol of their nation and their culture and their faith and their calling as a people. But why was it so important? What made it so central? It's because it was the place 
where humans could access God. It was the place where heaven and earth met. And at the center of it all was this room, the the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where God's presence dwelled. Now, when I say the word Holy of Holies, here's what I want you to think of. I want you to think of the surface of the sun. All right, kids, I want you to help me out. What does the surface of the sun feel like? Very hot, right? And what would you say if you were suddenly standing on the surface of the sun? Right? You wouldn't want to be there. You would scream at the top of your lungs. It would not be good. God is a lot like the sun. God is the blazing center around which everything else revolves. He is the source and the sustainer of all life. Without God, the world as we know it would fall into darkness and death. That's a good thing that we have God. And yet, just like the sun, you can't just walk on the surface of the sun. You can't just walk into the presence of God. It would destroy you. Not because the sun has done something wrong or because God has done something wrong, but because you simply couldn't handle it. In the same way, human beings could not walk into the holy of holies. And it wasn't because God was kind of squeamish. He couldn't stand to look at your icky sin. It's like, no, because as a sinful human being, the holy presence of God would destroy you. When we read in the Old Testament stories about people who fall down dead in the presence of God, it should not shock us. You know what should shock us? That anybody encounters God and lives. But here's the marvel. God made a way for human beings to enter his presence and survive. God allowed the people to come into his presence by offering a sacrifice for their sin. And this is amazing when you think about it. A sacrifice was as simple as bringing an animal, a goat or a bull, something that every farmer in Israel had and said, if you give this, you can come near to God. And even more amazing than that is that every single year, God opened up the Holy of Holies for one person to come in and actually be in his presence and offer a sacrifice and come out alive. Sometimes when we read the rules about the temple in the Old Testament, it comes across to us as kind of rigid, you know, kind of legalistic and ritualistic. And we feel like, you know, why do they have to do all that stuff? But the first century Jews, Israel throughout their history, they would have never felt that way. They would have thought, what a privilege. What a privilege that one of our own people can actually enter into the presence of God and be with him. Think think about it this way. When someone uh, goes up into space, so they they launch astronauts up in a a shuttle, they go up into space, millions of people tune in. They they gather around to watch the the event that they, they go up into space or they land on the moon or whatever it is. People are glued to this. And there is nobody watching that. Nobody watching that saying, huh, how come they're the only ones who get to do this? Why all the rules about space travel? No, what people are thinking is, I can't believe anybody can do that. I can't can't believe there is any one person could possibly do that and live. That's how the Israelites felt about the high priest going into the Holy of Holies. It was a marvel to them that even one person could do it, let alone every single year. I want you to imagine what it would be like to be a priest who worked in the temple. Not, Not the high priest, not the one who went to the Holy of Holies, but an ordinary priest who would have been working, say, on the day that Jesus died. So imagine you're, you're working in the temple and it's the day after the Passover sacrifices. So it was a busy day the day before. 
They sacrifice uh, tens of thousands of animals for the Passover meal. And so you come in tired, but it's your day to go into the holy place, which isn't the inner room. It's the room right on the outside of that. So it's this close to the Holy of Holies, but it's a place where they've got a lampstand and it's your job to tend to the lampstand. And you've done this many times before, but every time you do, you come in and you're just amazed. You look at the temple. It never gets old. You just, it's just so beautiful and it's so special. It means so much to you. And, and you walk into the holy place and you see the curtain that's there between where you are and the holy of holies. And you, it's a massive curtain, 60 feet high. It's four inches thick. This is huge. It's purple, it's gold. It's got these images of, uh, of cherubim woven into it. These, these fierce angelic warriors. And every time you look at it, you see, you think about the story of the Garden of Eden. How when God kicked the people out of his presence, Adam and Eve left, God placed the cherubim there to guard so that people couldn't come back into God's presence. And you realize how serious that is. And yet you know you're this close. Four inches of fabric is all that separates you. You go about your work and you tend the lambs and as you do, you pray. You pray for your neighbors and you pray for your family and you thank God for the fact that he lets you be a priest in his temple and you worship him and you praise him. And as you do this, you hear this tremendous sound. You hear a ripping coming from the Holy of Holies. And you look up at the curtain and somehow it is falling apart. It is tearing a, a rip coming down from the top to the bottom, down the center of the curtain, and all sorts of questions flood your mind. But more than anything, you are terrified. You know the law. You know the stories of what has happened to people in this situation before. And so you are afraid out of your mind. You, you dive to the floor, guard your eyes, and you crawl your way out of the holy place. You gather yourself. You, you talk to the priests. And all day long, you're asking, what does this mean? What, what just happened? What, what do we do now? And whether or not those priests ever figured it out, the Jewish followers of Jesus, they offered an explanation of what it meant. They said that the death of Jesus meant that the temple system and the sacrifices were done, that they were fulfilled, that you no longer needed to go to that place to access God's presence. You went to Jesus. You no longer needed a priest to mediate between you and God. Jesus was now our high priest. You no longer needed to offer sacrifices again and again for sin. Jesus was the final perfect sacrifice. And they realized that even though the sacrificial system offered a limited access to God, at some level, it never fully removed the barrier. And in some ways, it perpetuated the barrier. It kept people at a distance from God. But now with Jesus, the barrier of sacrifice was removed. It's interesting, there are some people who don't want that barrier removed. And I don't mean that there are some people who wish that they could offer animal sacrifices. What I mean is this, there are some people who kind of like the way religion keeps God at a distance from them. So what do you mean by that? It means that there are sometimes when people like to have kind of the religious ritual or they like to have the religious professional who kind of you know, takes care of things for them. You know, they go to the service, you know, you do your thing, they do their thing, you check the box and it's done. You've taken care of the God thing. And it's not that you don't want kind of religion or God in your life. It's just that you kind of want it in a contained place, a safe place where it takes up this, but it doesn't invade all of that. 
It's sort of like calling a plumber, you know? You, you could maybe figure out how to do it yourself, but, you know, it sounds like it would be difficult and it'd take a lot of time and a bit of a mess, so just let some professionals do it. it it'll get done, but it'll be at a distance. There's something intimidating. There's something intimidating about a God who has no barriers, who's not stuck in his room anymore. You might feel like that priest in the temple when the curtain was torn. You are terrified because what happens when a holy God is on the loose in your life? It might affect some things. Some of you need to ask yourself, where have I been keeping God at arm's length? Where where have I actually used things that might be good, even religious activity, not as a way to get close to God, but a way to keep God from invading the other parts of my life? And what would it mean if God were actually not behind a curtain, not behind a barrier? Jesus removed the barrier of sacrifice. Now, the next question is, how exactly did he do that? And this is where it comes to the second barrier that he removed. The cross removed the barrier of guilt. The barrier of guilt. Got to remember how the barriers between us and God got there in the first place. It goes all the way back to our first parents in the Garden of Eden. They had complete access to God's presence. No barriers whatsoever. Nothing. And yet they decided it wasn't enough. They didn't just want to be with God. They wanted to be God. They wanted to run their own life. They wanted to meet their own needs, set their own agenda, have their own purpose for the world. They wanted to do it all. And so when they rejected God's loving rule over their life, they also lost access to God's presence. They walked out of the garden. And ever since, every single one of us has made the exact same choice. We look anywhere and everywhere else to give our hearts to something other than God. We wanna run our own life. We wanna set our own agenda, but not turn to him. And this is sin, and it's the reason for the barrier. And what sin does is it makes us guilty. Now, when I use the word guilty, I don't just mean the feeling that you have when you've done something wrong, when you feel bad about something you've done. We're gonna talk about that in a little bit. But I'm talking about objectively speaking, whatever you feel about what you've done, God, the judge, has declared a verdict over your life and said, guilty, you are wrong. You have a mark on your permanent record. You have a debt that you have to pay. You have a sentence that you need to serve. And at this point, even if you wanted to go back to God, you said, yeah, no, I I would like to get close to God. There is something standing in the way and it has to be dealt with before you can approach him. You are guilty. Now, of course, none of us wants to admit this. Our instincts go looking for all sorts of ways to actually declare, no, no, we're really innocent. Any of you like to listen to uh, true crime stories, maybe watch shows that have this? There's all sorts of podcasts, all sorts of shows that dive deep into the story of someone who went to prison for some crime. And they try to investigate what was going on. I've only listened to a couple of these podcasts, but I've noticed a pattern already. A lot of the times, this is how they hook you in. They say, all right, someone has been accused of this crime and they're convicted, but what if they're actually innocent? And so this, you know, scrappy podcaster with a mic and some quirky music decides that if they investigate long enough, they're going to find something that the detectives and the attorneys and the judges, they all missed. But once that's overturned, you know, once that's revealed, it'll all be overturned. And that's how they suck you in. But almost all the time, you know what happens? The podcaster, the documentary, they dig in and they find more interesting facts about something and it all piles on to say, no, actually, they really did do it. This is how a lot of us deal with our own life. We have sin and we go looking for all the reasons why, you know what, my motives were good. No, actually what I was doing was a good thing. That's not a bad thing. The circumstances, that explains my actions. 
If you compare me to someone else, it's not that bad. You look for a technicality, a loophole. And if you think you don't do this, pay attention the next time someone calls you out on something. A spouse, a sibling, a parent, friend. Do you get defensive? Do you blame other people? Try to rationalize, justify your actions. We do it just to avoid the reality, facing the truth that we are guilty. Now those sacrifices, they were meant to deal with guilt, at least temporarily. And so in a symbolic way, when someone brought a goat and it stood in their place, that animal was paying the price that they owed for their sin so they didn't have to pay it. But the sacrifices were just a stopgap measure. The author of the book of Hebrews, we've been studying this for the last six weeks, the author of the book of Hebrews points out that if sacrifices were actually effective, at some point you wouldn't have to keep giving them. They would have dealt with sin. And yet, ironically, the thing that's supposed to help you know that God has forgiven you just keeps reminding you that your guilt keeps hanging over your head. So this is what he said. He says, worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all if the sacrifices really worked and no, and no longer would have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But this is where Jesus comes in. He does what the sacrifices only pointed to but could never actually accomplish. Jesus takes our penalty. Now, how can Jesus do this? How can he take on a penalty for something you and I have done? That seems kind of odd. Wonder, wonder if any of you have ever co-signed for a loan or had someone co-sign for a loan for you. Okay, I'm gonna explain this to the kids because this is one even, even adults sometimes are like, how does this really work? Okay, here's how it works. Imagine you've gotta buy something for say $10. You're like, I don't have $10. So you go to your mom or your dad. You say, hey, can I borrow $10? Your mom and dad say, well, you know, I, you're gonna have to pay it back, right? But what happens if you don't pay it back? What if you just take my $10 and you don't give any, any back to me later? You say, well, you know what? My brother, he's gonna, he's gonna pay it. If I don't pay the $10, my brother will pay it. Now, what does your brother think about that? Is that a good deal for him? No, no, no yes. Someone's like, I know, I'm not gonna get snookered. I'm gonna be the one to borrow the $10. He's gonna be the one to pay, right? Like, that's how it works. In fact, the Bible says co-signing with someone, saying I'll pay if they don't, is usually a foolish idea. The book of Proverbs warns against it. But this is what Jesus does with us. Normally, if you are gonna make that deal with someone, you're gonna co-sign with someone, you look at that person and say, all right, I see that they've got a source of money so they could actually pay it back and that they've got good character so they actually will. But when Jesus looks at us, what does he see? Does he see someone who's trustworthy? No, he sees the people who abandoned him and denied him and the crowds crying, crucify him. And when, when he looks at us, does he see someone who is spiritually rich? No, he, he sees that we are desperately poor, spiritually speaking. And he knows that we could never be able to pay the bill that we owe God. And so when it comes due, when we've got to pay it back, you know what Jesus does? He says, I'll pay it for you and I'll pay it in full. There are actually details in this passage that point to the fact that Jesus wasn't just dying a death, that the death he died was actually paying our price, taking our penalty that we deserve. Let me show you a few details. Verse 33 says this, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. You say, well, that, that sounds weird. It's just like weather though, right? No. Darkness all throughout the Bible is a symbol of God's judgment. 
And so this unusual darkness in the middle of the day is a, a, a sign that it, it is God's punishment for sin that is falling on Jesus. Well, one of the blessings that the priests would say in the temple is may God make his face to shine on you. This idea of God's face shining light on you. God is light and yet Jesus is in darkness. Verse 34 has another detail. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in Jesus's entire existence, he is experiencing the barrier between humans and God. The, the one who has only ever known perfect communion and fellowship with the Father now experiences abandonment. As Jesus bears the guilt for our sin, he experiences the full consequences, the separation and the agony that that causes. He experiences forsakenness that we deserve. Look at verse 37. Finally, it says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Remember, this is the sentence that God the judge declared over humanity when we first rebelled. As we're walking out of the garden, you shall surely die. The way Paul puts it is he says, the wages of sin is death. The paycheck you earn for sinning is dying. And so this is what we've earned. This is what we deserve. What, what is happening to Jesus, suffering, death, separation from God. And yet here, the Lord of life is breathing his last breath. This is what's happening. Jesus is taking the penalty that you and I deserved. And when that happened, Jesus accomplished what no sacrifice ever could, and he removed the barrier of guilt between us and God. The curtain was torn. The cherubim no longer blocked the way into Eden. The holy of holies was open so that we could access the presence of God. And when we realize the price that Jesus paid to do that, it, it does a couple of things. First of all, it humbles us. I mean, think about that. When you consider what it cost Jesus, you can never say, you know what, my sin is not that big of a deal. That God's just gonna brush it aside. He's, he's gonna overlook it. No, look at the cost. Your sin and my sin is deadly serious. It is a bigger deal than we could imagine. It took the son of God dying to deal with it. And when you realize that, all defensiveness all rationalizing, all blame shifting. It just falls away. We're humbled and say, that's what I deserved. But it also, it also liberates us. Because when you see what Jesus has done, you realize, wait, my guilt is actually gone. If I have trusted in him, my guilt is gone. The, the Bible uses tremendous imagery to try to explain this. It says, God remembers our sin no more. Our sin is as far away as the east is from the west. God has hurled our sin into the bottom of the sea. It's gone. There are some of you who are so weighed down by things you have done in your life, and you think, how am I ever going to make up for this? How am I, gonna, how am I ever going to pay back for this? You imagine, I could never do it, and you're right, you can't. But the deeper truth is this. You no longer have to. Jesus has paid the price for that sin, and that is enough. And so I want you to think about that. The Son of God died to take away your guilt. What more could be offered? What more could be needed to pay, be paid? What else could possibly be enough to add to that? The Son of God died. No accusation can stand up to that. Oh yeah, you're guilty? Guess what? 
Someone paid for my sin, and it was the Son of God. That barrier is removed. One more barrier that the cross removes. The barrier of shame. The barrier of shame. Here's what I mean by the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt says, objectively speaking, I have done something wrong, and it stands between me and God. I am not allowed to be in God's presence. But shame says this. Shame is kind of the subjective experience. It says, I might be allowed to be with God, but I'm not sure God wants me to be with him. That there are a lot of us who believe that our guilt is removed. We would say, yeah, I've surrendered to Jesus. He's forgiven me. I know that. And yet the barrier of shame still holds us back. It's sort of like being at a party. You remember parties? Like back in the before time? Here's what a party was if you don't remember. Okay, a whole lot of people got together in a small space and they stood closer than six feet to each other and they talked directly into each other's faces without masks. It was wild back then. (laughs) But here's what shame is. Shame is you're at a party and you know you're allowed to be there. You're, You're, you know, no one's kicking you out. But you look around and you think, I don't think these people want me here. They only invited me because they felt like they had to. They might even be a little embarrassed that I'm here. Like, like yeah, no one's, no one's showing me to the door, but they probably wouldn't mind if I left. You ever feel that way about God? Like, that's what he's really thinking about you? Like, he's just kind of tolerating you? Like, you got in on a technicality, you know? Like, God loves everybody, and so he kind of has to love you. It's his job, and so he might love you, but you're not sure he really likes you. Once you look back at the passage, there's an interesting detail that addresses this that you might not expect. Right after the temple curtain is torn, Mark shifts back to the cross and and he focuses on one person. You would think he'd focus on Jesus, but he focuses on this random guy, this Roman soldier. It says in verse 39, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Now, in the book of Mark, this is what you got to know. There are only two people who proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. One is at the very beginning, and one is at the very end of the book. So they're like bookends to this book. And the interesting thing about this final declaration of this is that this is not the person you would expect to be saying, here is the Son of God. It's not a priest. It's not a religious leader. It's not one of Jesus' disciples. It is a Roman soldier, the very last person who should recognize who Jesus is. He is a Gentile, not a Jew. He is considered unclean. He wouldn't be allowed in the temple, much less anywhere close to the Holy of Holies. He is an enemy of God's people. He is part of a foreign army who has invaded and occupied Israel. And he has lived a brutal, bloody life. This man has done some horrible things. Torturing and killing hundreds, maybe thousands of people. There's a reason he is overseeing a crucifixion. And we don't know what happened to the soldier after this, but... I'm willing to guess that if he recognized who Jesus was here, that he might have become a Christ follower. And I want you to imagine what the rest of his life would have been. Imagine what would have been on his conscience. He is the one who literally nailed the Son of God to the cross. He had his blood on his hands. He held the hammer. I I don't know how he dealt with that. But I can tell you this. God welcomed him with open arms. And if God would welcome this Roman centurion, if this Roman centurion can see and approach God, then anybody can, even you, even me.
So before, there was another person in the book of Mark who declared Jesus to be the Son of God at the very beginning. It's a very different kind of scene there. It's a scene when Jesus was being baptized. When he came up out of the water, it says this. It says, the heavens were torn open. And that's the exact same word to describe what was going on with the curtain in the temple. It was torn open. And the idea is the same. God, from his holy throne room, is pulling back the curtain and coming out. The spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove. And the voice of God the Father declares, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So if you've read Mark straight through, you see these bookends and you say, how are these connected? They seem like like stories that are similar things are happening, but they are also so different from each other. That the first time that heaven is torn open and God comes out and declares that Jesus is his beloved son, he delights in him. And the second time, Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is going on here? What has happened? Well, it's that Jesus has traded places with us. Jesus has entered into our forsakenness so that we can share his belovedness. On the cross, Jesus took on our shame so that we could experience his God's declaration over us. You are my son. You are my daughter. I love you. And you make me so happy. Do you believe that God says that over you? If you are in Christ, it is true. In Christ, you are not merely forgiven. You are not merely tolerated. You are delighted in. How do you know that? How do you know that God doesn't just tolerate you? How, how do you know he desires you? Again, you look at the cross and you, you see what he went through and you realize Jesus didn't have to do that. He didn't have to. He could have stopped it at any second. No one forced him. He chose. He chose to be there. Why would anyone choose to go through that kind of a suffering? Why, why would you do that if you could stop it? The only reason you would choose that It's if it got you something that you thought was supremely valuable, something that you really, really wanted. This is the reason the song we're about to sing starts off like this. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his, let me hear you say it, treasure. That's talking about you, friend. Son of God gave his life for you because he sees you as a treasure. And if you are a treasure to God, then the barrier of shame is removed. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, your love. It's beyond our comprehension. The price that you paid to remove the barriers so that we no longer have to sacrifice for our sins. That we bear no guilt if we are in you. That our shame is removed and we are welcomed, welcomed into your presence. Oh God, Thank you. Thank you.
who are worthy of all the praise, all the honor, all our life. You don't belong in one little room. You can have it all, God. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.